There's no debate that language is a human right and that everybody has the right to speak their own language in their home. And it's well established that everybody has the right to receive an education in their native language. Where it becomes slightly less clear is where those rights extend beyond the educational system and beyond the home. In the absence of a clear defined definition, that's where it becomes complicated. What exactly does it mean when we say language is an inalienable human right? Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. Our subject today is language or languages in Ireland. And I'm very glad that we have two contributors. One is Brianno Conachor, who is the author of Politics of Language in a Disunited Ireland. There are brackets around dis, a disunited Ireland. Um, he's an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. And the other contributor is Roisin Costello, who's an assistant professor at Dublin City University. And she's the author of an article called To Be British, Irish or Both, Understanding Language Rights as a Tool for Reconciliation in Northern Ireland. And both articles are published uh, on the Aaron's website and in the Royal Irish Academy's Journal of Studies in International Affairs. So maybe I could begin with you, uh, Breen, and we're recording just in the middle of December, and within the last few days, um, legislation has been enacted at Westminster, uh, following on a, a range of commitments over, over the years. And I wonder if you might like to say briefly what's in it, um, what effects do you think it might have, uh, and what obstacles may there be, uh, if any, to its uh, full implementation? Right, so uh, that's the Identity and Language of Northern Ireland Act. So the first thing is it's symbolically very, very important. Uh, it gives official status to the Irish language in the North for the first time. And perhaps more importantly, it does away with the 1737 Act, which allows for Irish now to be used in the courts. Uh, they're probably the two most symbolic aspects of it. Uh, it also allows for the appointment of a commissioner for the Irish language and a commissioner for Ullins and Ulster British culture. And that's where the fun and games will begin. Who will fill those positions? Who is qualified to fill those positions? What their reign, what their remit will be and how various sides will react to them. And what does it actually mean? It, it, it's the, in the implementation of the legislation and how that's defined and nuanced over the coming years, which will be critical. So um, the Conra and Andrón Darug have welcomed it, but they do have some reservations about how it will be implemented. Worryingly, they have also said that it's not the end step, it's just the first step. And that's somewhat vague and that will, that will be a red a red flag to those who see the Irish language as a Trojan horse. And what's the response been from the Ulster Scots um, Ulland side? Uh, not, not an awful lot. The TUV have focused on um, the economic crisis, uh, inflation, and why are we wasting money on 
such things as culture, language and the arts when there are more pressing uh, economic issues. It's a very neoliberal take on language, culture. And tell me then, the, the two commissioners that you mentioned, am I right in thinking that they are due to be appointed by the First Minister and Deputy First Minister if such if such persons um, will actually exist? Correct. But then with reserve powers, presumably for the Northern Ireland Secretary, if necessary? Yes, but again, the, the largest challenge will be to find somebody who can fill those positions and then walk the tightrope. And how about funding? Uh, that, that's, co- that, that's covered. I'm not sure if there's an actual budget, but it, it seems to be generous. Right, okay. Uh, Roisin, um, maybe just we might just step back a bit then and you might let us know, uh, let the audience know, What's the current actual situation, both in the North and in the South, about the number of people who who speak either of these languages um, or who understand or who are generally sympathetic? How much do we know? Um, and I suppose another interesting point is, of course, the, the number of people um, you know, newly or not so newly arrived in the country, um, North and South, who speak uh, other languages altogether. Mm. Yeah, so I, I suppose the, the position in Northern Ireland and, and the Republic is somewhat different in that we don't have a huge amount of data from Northern Ireland on the number of minority language speakers or regional language speakers. Um, so we're, I suppose, we have a, a rough uh, indication of, of what the census, the most recent census in Northern Ireland may say. Uh, and, and that is really indicative of a, a population of speakers or daily speakers that is quite small. Um, I mean, that's a, a legacy of, I suppose, two things in particular. The first is the fact that the language is simply not uh, accommodated in public spaces uh, or within national curricula, for example, in the same way it has been in the South. Uh, and also a far more deliberate uh, hostility on the part of the state to regional and minority languages. So that's, I suppose, the, the first issue. Um, in respect of the, the, the South, then um, the population uh, who... I suppose to self-describe as Irish speaking has remained relatively consistent um, over the last two census periods. There's, if anybody read Fintan O'Toole's article this morning in the in the Irish Times, there's a an interesting uh, indication that the number of Irish speakers or the number or percentage perhaps of the population of Dublin who describe themselves as daily Irish speakers is about 8%. And that's lower than the national uh, population of, of daily Irish speakers. Um, but I suppose it's, it's indicative of how many people in in a, the most maybe diverse area of the country are are using Irish on a on a daily basis? But again, that comes with the qualification that a lot of the reasons for that is that Irish is not a, a very visible language in public spaces, even in the south. Um, it's certainly tolerated and it's officially legislated for. There are specific statutory and constitutional rights to speak Irish to interact with the state through Irish, but it is effectively impossible in both parts of the island to use Irish as your daily language unless you live in an area classified as a Gaeltuk, whether that's self-classified like in Northern Ireland, I think about portions of West Belfast, or whether it's in the South in one of the officially designated areas. So I suppose that's the kind of, maybe the broad picture of this. Um, I suppose the thing to really flag, and I think you've raised it there, Rory, is this conflation often between minority languages, which are 
traditional or indigenous languages, we can describe them as maybe, uh, and then languages which are minority languages because they belong to smaller populations within the country, including populations uh, which belong to, for example, immigrant communities or, or newly arrived and first generation Irish communities. There's been an awful lot of emphasis, and, and Brian has touched on this in his article, on this conflation of, well, there are actually more Polish speaking uh, members of Northern Ireland than there are Irish speakers. Um, and that's just a, a, an attempt really to pass the book on the state's obligations. Uh, Northern Ireland is a signatory to the uh, European Convention on, on Regional and Minority, Charter rather, on Regional and Minority Languages. But those aren't regional and minority languages in terms of any language. The regional and minority languages defined as the languages traditionally spoken within that jurisdiction or spoken by indigenous populations. So we're not talking about small groups of uh, individuals who maybe speak Tagalog or uh, Polish or some other dialect or language and are part of a population that has come to Ireland or indeed part of a population that is ethnically distinct from the Irish population, but were born here. We're talking about specifically indigenous and traditionally found regional minority languages. So uh, Irish, Ulster, Scots, Ullams, uh, to some extent you could perhaps argue Scots Gaelic, although it's now faded away. Um, but those are kind of the, the languages we're talking about when we're talking about um, the, the 2022 Act now in Northern Ireland uh, and the Charter, which kind of underpins the obligations that that's based on. And of course, I mean, in the South, the Irish language, though it may be spoken only by a minority of the population is, of course, by definition, not a minority language. It's the, the first yes. initial language of the state. Yeah, and I think that's maybe one of the, the really important things to emphasise in this discussion is that the provision that is made in the South is uh, de jure much stronger. So on paper, we have a constitutionally elevated language. It is given high symbolic status. It is the first and official national language. It's provided for secondarily through legislation, uh, and then it also has official status uh, from the European Union as an official language. Um, but all of those things together uh, provide an, essentially an equivalent level of protection in some ways to that provided by the Charter in the North, where there are very similar uh, requirements in terms of the provision for rights in interacting with the state through your chosen language, integration into the curriculum, uh, provisions in terms of culture. Um, so in some ways, there's a strange, uh, I suppose, on paper, a huge divergence in terms of how the provision is made. Um, but in practice, we can see an awful lot of very similar standards and thresholds. Brian, one of the interesting things in your um, paper I found was your discussion of the concept of language rights, um, upon which some people, especially in Northern Ireland, rely very strongly. Um, and, you know, you discuss the question of whether there are limits to this concept and how it's to be balanced against other sorts of, of rights. Um, would you like to comment on that? Yeah. Um, being aware, it's more it's more Roisin's ability with the, than, than my own. Um, there's no debate that language is a human right and that everybody has the right to speak their own language in their home. And it's well established that everybody has the right to receive an education in their native language. Where it becomes slightly less clear is where those rights extend beyond the educational system and beyond the home. And it's something which is vague and which varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And in the absence of a clear defined definition, that's where it becomes complicated. What exactly does it mean when we say language is an inalienable human 
right. Therefore, do I have the right to speak language X everywhere and anywhere and demand services everywhere and anywhere in that language? And of course, it's 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 important to remember that while there was provision um, in the Good Friday Agreement for uh, work on a Bill of Human Rights, a Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland or specific to Northern Ireland, uh, that work uh, stalled and, and such a Bill of Rights has never been adopted in part, I imagine, because uh, how it would deal with the whole question of well, rights of this kind and the whole question of communal rights uh, is, is, a, is a problem. In some ways, the reason the issue around the Irish language in Ullens are complicated and tangled is that they cut across so many other areas. Language involves everything we do uh, throughout the entire day. Every form of cultural activity involves language. And it's once you start get, getting into this issue of rights, then you're into gender rights, human rights, medical rights, and it cuts, it, it's, it opens a Pandora's box. Uh, Roisin? Yeah, I might just jump in there. Because it, Breen is touching on a, a really, really important aspect of this is that in providing for language rights, language rights exist in every other right as well. They're essentially then a subset of freedom of expression, privacy, all those other rights and have a linguistic component. So the primary question is whether language rights are rights in themselves or just expressions of rights that we would recognise in other contexts. And the second thing I think Breen is touching on as well is this idea of well, if you're going to have language rights, that necessarily necessarily means there's not only the right, but then a, a correlated obligation. And the real problem with language rights is how you impose those obligations and on whom in a proportionate way. Because language rights operate effectively as group rights, who are you imposing that obligation on? Is it a correlated group that is completely separate to this group? Is it a group which is partially belonging to the group trying to exercise the rights and partially outside it? Um, and is the burden proportionate? And in particular with minority languages, the question is, well, is it proportionate to impose this obligation on the population as a whole uh, for this minority group? Uh, and that's often where the kind of group rights, collective rights dialogue really breaks down because it's seen as not proportionate. Um, now we can get into discussions of, you know, what merits proportionality and what doesn't and how you assess that. But I think those on a really technical level, those are two of the kind of really, really large objections. That was a much more elegant answer. <laughs> <laughs> Breen, we know that this is a very, I mean, a very divisive and polarising issue in, in Northern Ireland. Um, it, you know, was one of the reasons for the, the breakdown of the executive in 2017. And we know it was difficult um, to reach agreement in the new decade, new approach um, agreement. Um, I mean, how would you explain the extent of polarization about language uh, in Northern Ireland? And was it always, um, was it always like this? No, absolutely not. Uh, so first of all, the whole idea of the monolingual speaker on the island is something relatively new over the long arc of history. Um, 17, 16th, 17th, 18th, even early 19th century, people were in the north especially were able to move in between languages, between English, Irish, Scots, Gaelic. Uh, there may not they may not even have recognized a difference in the gradation between Irish, Scots, Gaelic and others. Um, it's difficult to pinpoint when exactly the polarization began because it's a slow, gradual process. Um, a key point in, 
in, in the in the polarization would have been the years directly after um, home rule and climaxing in the early years of the the new states on both sides of the border, where Irish very after home rule. Uh, after 1916, the War of Independence, the Irish language became mapped onto nationalism and Catholicism uh, and became closely associated with De Valera and with the reunification project. And as a countermeasure to that, you saw the marginalization of the Irish language in the North, you saw discrimination in the educational system, in the state system. And that created a, a vacuum. And that vacuum existed for a long time. And then finally, when nobody else stepped in, it was individuals who were well-intentioned and who largely tended to be nationalists and Sinn Féin politicians. And that just reinforced the stereotypes. But there is no reason historically for the Irish language to be mapped to nationalism or Catholicism. Roisin? Yeah, and I think one of the things that's... Uh really stands out certainly when I, I've done some research as a community partner in Belfast she's from um, the kind of East Belfast community and one of the things that has really stood out for her and her work uh, is how looking at census records so many of the families who consider themselves very strongly unionist uh, Protestant English speakers uh, actually have far more linguistically complicated families even two generations ago um, and I think you know Brina's absolutely right like when we look at the history of who was on the side of Irish the Protestant and Presbyterian churches are the people who were convert, uh, translating the Bible into Irish, who were doing mass in Irish far, far before the Catholic Church ever stops uh, and turns away from Latin. Um, so it is, it's way more uh, linguistically complicated and linguistically diverse than I think we want to give ourselves credit for. I think there's also a huge amount um, to be said about uh, linguistic capacity and also that there were families where members were Irish speakers and members were English speakers neither would have considered themselves to a huge competence in the other language and yet they would be able to understand it um, and that we view it now as like well you're an Irish speaker or an English speaker and unless you can understand and speak back in Irish you're not an Irish speaker uh, whereas really the kind of borders of fluency break down an awful lot when we look at the historical record there are large numbers of people who move kind of indeterminately between languages and wouldn't classify themselves easily within any of them, but are very well able to integrate within a very linguistically diverse community. And I think we've lost we've lost sight of that a lot. No, it is interesting. I mean, the question of um, how things developed in the first decades of, of the state uh, and of Northern Ireland. I mean, certainly I know that Church of Ireland schools for a period in the 1920s objected to compulsory Irish. Um, equally, I know that um, my old mother, in fact, in the late 1940s, um, did courses in Irish. She was from an Ulster Presbyterian background and went to a Protestant school under the influence of one of her teachers. And she was threatened with the loss of her Belfast Corporation scholarship if she continued taking these extracurricular classes. Now, would that be possible or would it not? So that it was very divisive. And then you say, yeah, more recently, I mean, uh, Breen in particular, I mean, I know that there were uh, you know, many supporters of the Irish language who, who weren't coming from a very, they were broadly nationalist perhaps, but they weren't coming from a very specific political position. I mean, like the late Adolf MacPolian, for example, whom I, whom I knew a little bit. But you mentioned Sinn Féin and I suppose when, when did Sinn Féin um, become actively involved uh, in the Irish language issue? Yeah, great question. So there's a there's a school of thought that um, if you approach this from the unionist side, 
they would look at the little green book strategy at the same time as the hunger strikes, that they, they would say that this is the weaponization of the Irish language occurs at the same time as the hunger strike, whereas the language is part of a broader move to go back to human rights, to drive a wedge and to, uh, to, to separate uh, Northern Ireland from wider British culture. Um, on the counter side of that, there are they were always very, very well-intentioned individuals who were members of Sinn Féin, who were Irish speakers. There is a school of thought that there are others in both SDLP and Sinn Féin who are simply uh, availing of the language uh, discourse, the language debate, to popularise themselves and to avail of votes. And there's a question back over how, how genuine that support for the language is beyond simply uh, an election campaign. Then coming to to Ullens then, um, I mean, again, it seems to have emerged rather late in the day as a as a separate language in the eyes of its promoters. You go into this a bit in your article as well, Brian. Um, but and there's a lot of scepticism, of course, still over whether it is or isn't an actual language as opposed to a dialect. But politically, I mean, is there a, is there a sense that beyond the fact that unionists will look for a counterweight to the promotion of the Irish language, to what extent is there a sense that it is really a, a genuine language with an authentic, if you like, cultural heritage over and beyond the general northern Protestant um, heritage? Yeah, I, I'm getting that question. Am I? Yeah. <laughs> You are. Um, it depends on how you define a language. And at one level, that's irrelevant as long as the unionist community privilege others and as long as it remains critically important for them, then it is a language, it's part of a debate, and I'd be hesitant to see it as an Irish versus others. Conversation. I think by introduce Sir Irish versus Ullins, um, by introducing Ullins into the situation, it adds a third coordinate. It allows for flexibility. It allows some some creative thinking. It makes it a, triang a triangle rather than an either or. Um, linguistically, my own my attitude would be a language is defined by having a distinct grammatical structure, and I don't think Ullins meets that bar, but depending on the definition you use, it may. However, it's the significant significance importance to the unionist uh, community can't be ignored, and debates about whether it is or isn't a language isn't very productive. As long as the unionist community and the speakers of that language privilege it, then it has to be part of the conversation. And to call them, to, the, the conversation about whether it is a language or isn't a language are productive and they tend to inflame the situation. And of course, yeah, the Westminster Act, as you as you mentioned at the beginning, covers both languages, and it doesn't appear that one is, uh, you know, is is taking away from 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 the other. So we know, I say, it's a very polarized situation in in Northern Ireland, and you know, as I say, unionists and nationalists from their very different perspectives approach the question of Irish in particular very, very differently. Um, and it is politicised to a considerable degree, I mean, perhaps inevitably. But maybe, Roisin, I mean, and both of you in your in your um, papers, you, you talk about ways of how tensions and polar, polarities might be, you know, diminished or 
or, or if not totally overcome. Um, maybe you might like to talk a bit about, about that, Roisin. Sure. So, I mean, my research in this area is focused very much on the how you can depoliticize what is effectively a political right. Uh, so we want provision for these languages through uh, legislation, uh, which means that it's necessarily a political right uh, mm. by definition in its statutory terms. And yet we are also trying to depoliticize the language. Um, so a lot of my research is focused on how you do that by, um, I suppose, uh, re-complicating li- linguistic identity. Um, so a lot of my research looks at how um, individuals, and certainly within the, the East Belfast community, uh, can be reintroduced to their own linguistic inheritance and that idea of using census and sort of genealogical research to uncover just how recent uh, a far more linguistically complex uh, family unit existed uh, and how you can uncover that. And, and certainly that's um, been quite successful at a very kind of individual base with uh, reacquainting particular individuals with uh, the relationship their family had uh, alongside the same political affiliation. Um, so I think that that's been very beneficial. I think certainly in Northern Ireland, there's been huge success with the, the Northern Irish Place Names Project, which does a kind of similar thing on a very geographical basis, where they uh, unpack the meaning of the place names that have been anglicised and show um, the Irish meaning of those those names and how they identify very recognisable community characteristics for the people who still live there, uh, and that's been really successful as well. So I think there are kind of in depoliticizing what is a political right, there are quite kind of soft law elements that we can look at and those very kind of cultural aspects that can be quite successful. To a certain extent, the uh, legislation that's been introduced is a, a sort of a mixed blessing. So Brian has talked about there how it's seen very much as a first step, uh, which means, of course, it's just going to be a, a kind of a stepping stone towards further agitation for more specific rights. Uh, and at one level, that's incredibly understandable because the legislation itself doesn't actually provide any rights as such. It provides official recognition and it brings Irish within the system of the law in no longer excluding it through the 1737 Act. Provides these kind of best practice principles, but it doesn't actually give individuals the right to interact with the state through their chosen language in the way equivalent legislation does in Wales, the Republic of Ireland or Scotland. Um, And in that respect, there's a significant gulf that still has to be breached and I have significant questions about whether the the, the legislation that's just been enacted actually meets the thresholds for the, East, the, the European Charter as well. Like there are real things to be worked out there. But I think focusing maybe too much on that kind of statutory basis can just be counterproductive. There's a necessity for amendment over time. We're going to need to see a kind of progressive shift towards a more, probably something more along the Welsh model um, in the future. But in trying to build the popular support for that kind of amendment and for it then to be put into practice, which is what Breen talked about at the beginning, that really relies, I think, on those more kind of soft influence, soft power, kind of cultural changes and and building the kind of support for that across communities. Uh, Breen? But exactly. And then the challenge for Androm Darug is can they maintain the momentum? Androm Darug is a pressure group which has been around for the last 10 years. Uh, they uh, Their slogan is Darug the Farug, uh, red with anger, red with outrage, um, at the lack of respect, lack of rights uh, accorded to the Irish language. And they, they're a very young, um, active, social media savvy, well-organized uh, media savvy uh, group. Um, they're organized mass protests, peaceful protests uh, in the north, also uh, in Dublin. Uh, It's one thing to get people out on the streets to say, we need equal rights or we need recognition for the Irish language. 
trying to get people out in the streets for minutia, legislation, the kind of things that lawyers like Roisin get excited about, but which <laughs> the, or, the ordinary rank and file person may not understand or care that much about. That will be a challenge for Andromed Arab moving forward to keep the momentum, to keep the pressure on. And do you think, I mean, are there other steps beyond those mentioned by by Roisin, which you think could be useful in uh, in, in, in reconciling um, the different perspectives? So the big challenge, the debate in Scotland and Wales at the moment uh, is about enforcement. It's all well and good having rights and charters. But what happens when the state fails? What happens when the state is no longer willing to meet its obligations? How do you enforce that? So if you look at uh, Ombudsman Nagelga, Commissioner Nakanga uh, in the Republic, uh, he can issue warnings, he can issue reports, he may be able to issue fines. But the, the, the delay in enforcing or administering those penalties and are you simply penalising a state body or are you changing the culture, changing the, the attitude? So it's, a, it's an issue of enforcement. How do you, when the state fails, how do you regulate state failure and how do you correct it? No, certainly as a, as a civil servant in my time, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I know that my own department almost certainly wasn't capable of fully um, meeting the, uh, you know, the, the standards in, in legislation. I mean, you could have embassies in which of consisting of five or six people in which nobody might have Irish and would be able to communicate properly with a citizen who wanted such assistance. Equally, I can recall, you know, the, the translation of white papers, for example, into other official papers into Irish, very, very challenging and quite costly as as well. So as you say, implementation is a is a is is a major feature of this. And I suppose Ultimately, if you were to use the courts, it's a questionable how you know, productive that would actually be. Well, there was a case last month that uh, involved a planning permission in Connemara and a Supreme Court, Roshan can correct me here, a Supreme Court judge argued that the litigants, if that's the right word, were not entitled to the uh, planning laws or the decision material in Irish on the grounds that they already had sufficient English. And that's, that's, well, I'll defer to Roshin. Yeah, yeah. so Mr. Justice Hogan gave a decision um, in, yeah, in a Supreme Court uh, case, uh, Brian's absolutely right about a, a, a planning group uh, operating in Connemara. I'm not sure that it, it, was, it was that, um, it, it can maybe be that stark. He did actually write the judgment in English and Irish, which is, um, uh, unusual, and it's specifically because he has uh, he has excellent Irish himself, I suppose, so it made it somewhat easier. But he, Mr. Justice Hogan's point, I suppose, is that the thing he really emphasised was that we weren't living up to our obligations under EU law, uh, and that there had been too much of a delay in in providing these kind of um, these kinds of materials um, in Irish. Now, the, the thing that was disappointing, I think, what Brian is talking about, in that there was this distinction drawn between primary legislation and then secondary legislation, so statutory instruments, for example. So there was the right to have the primary legislation in Irish, certainly, but that that right didn't necessarily extend to secondary instruments or secondary le- or statutory instruments or secondary legislation. So certainly, uh, and that it was came contrary to the decision that they'd had in the, the High Court, so I suppose they were too victorious at a lower level, and then it was paired back to something of more of a compromise at a higher level. 
to some extent, I think an awful lot of, you know, what we end up talking about in, in terms of language rights and what Brian has talked on there, what Mr. Justice Hogan is talking about as well, comes back really to this idea of resources and how much you want to allocate to particular things in terms of political priorities and, uh, and economic allocation. Like the, I don't know if anybody saw the, the Labour Party announcement yesterday that there simply isn't enough diversity within the teaching uh, staff in the south of Ireland and that the necessary way to resolve that is to reduce or remove the requirement to be able to, to have a certain qualification in Irish. Um, like it's plainly ludicrous. It first of all presumes that the Irish speaking community is not diverse, which in fact it is quite diverse, certainly given its numbers. It presumes also that individuals who are arriving in the state or who are first generation Irish or newly arrived immigrants who want to become teachers cannot speak Irish or do not want to learn how to or would not be perfectly satisfied that they would do that in order to enter the profession. Um, but it's that idea that um, Garrodine McAvoy, and Dr. Garrodine McAvoy, I beg your pardon, an academic who's just currently in Birmingham, does very good work about this. And it's the idea that there is such a thing as a good gale uh, and that a good gale is somebody who enjoys Irish privately, but doesn't impose any requirement on the state or other citizens to uh, tolerate or facilitate their enjoyment of the language. Uh, and I think we see that again and again. And I think maybe one of the it's certainly the most significant challenge we have, and it's a challenge Northern Ireland will inevitably face if and when they get to the same point that we're at, uh, which isn't that much further ahead, is how to change that attitude, that it is not inconvenient or disruptive or um, seeking to pull one over on somebody to be to be using Irish and to be trying to exercise those kind of rights, and that actually that kind of linguistic diversity isn't exclusionary and it's not exclusive, uh, and that actually if it was embraced uh, more readily, we would... Uh, be in a position where it was much easier to actualise right standards without huge economic allocation, uh, whereas now it's becoming an issue of, of money just because it's so contested. Um, and that's something the European Charter placed a lot of emphasis on. They placed emphasis on the idea that uh, states should, sta state parties to the Charter should be trying to deliberately and specifically encourage the idea that linguistic diversity is an asset, um, both culturally and nationally, and that you're trying to encourage greater linguistic diversity because of that on its own merits. Um, but I think if we had that more kind of informal um, getting on board, maybe with the idea that it, the population is linguistically diverse and it's linguistically diverse in a way that isn't necessarily just about, you know, uh, gales of areas or, you know, middle class Irish speakers in Dublin, um, that we would perhaps have less of a challenge in terms of resource allocation, not just because the political will would be there, but also because you would have informal supports mm. that didn't require necessarily that kind of uh, economic or financial support. Uh, Brian, you'll just come back. Yeah, Roisin's, as she's been throughout the, throughout the podcast, bang on the money. Um, th there's a tendency when we talk about these issues uh, in the Republic to frame it in a way that this is a northern issue and the language issue has to be solved in the north. Whichever way this pans out, whether there is a referendum, whether there isn't a referendum, whether there's a series of referenda, it's going to change the conversation in the Republic. It's going to decenter the language in the Republic. The, the Irish-speaking community in the north is urban-based urban and radicalised, as in they're politically aware and they're engaged. The Irish language community in the South is still perceived as a Catholic, rural, conservative constituency, which is not the reality, and it hasn't been for several decades. But there, there will have to be a mind shift in the South, uh, both in the public 
in state thinking and in official planning. And well, that actually brings us neatly on to what I wanted to ask you um, about what issues might arise um, in the United Ireland and and specifically um, for the South in the United Ireland. Um, as I hope most of our listeners will have seen, Aaron's has, with the Irish Times, been publishing a, a range of, of findings from opinion polls um, and which show both um, a strong desire in the, in the Republic for United Ireland and considerable doubt um, about making many changes to how we operate down here um, to encourage it. But... Brian, in your article, you, you have quite a, a lengthy list. I mean, some perhaps are reductiones ad absurdum, uh, but you quite a long list of, you know, possible questions which might arise. So maybe you might like to give us a flavour of the sort of things which, you know, the state, whether it's a new state, a federal state, a unitary state, would, would have to address. Right, yeah, so it's, it's a long list and some were tongue-in-cheek, but the it, what I was trying to get at there is as soon as you agree to a discussion, as soon as you agree to negotiate, to have a joint agreement, then you have to be willing to define what is your priority and what are you willing to concede something on. So at the moment, my most conversations, again, to, to repeat the point, the idea is that it's the North is going to have to concede. The North is going, going to have to adjust. And that's not a good starting point for a, a reunification and, and negotiation. So are we talking if if I if this if the educational system, which is currently a standard in the South, was to be implemented throughout the entire country, then you would have the Irish language being taught in every national school, every secondary school throughout the entire island. Conversely, would you then have Ullens being taught in every primary school in Cork, Kerry, Limerick, would teachers be required to have Ullens? So there's going to have to be a conversation about what's practical, what's realistic. Um, does does everything have to be translated into Ullens? Should all literature, should Ullens publishers be fully funded in the same way that Irish language, the Irish language publishers are funded? Uh, should the Ulster Irish, should, should the Ulster dialect be privileged. So there's a whole lot of questions, minutia, which need to be considered. But the, the first question facing the Irish language community, uh, North and South, is are they willing to concede anything? And then the other thing is, if when we talk about reunification, are we talking about a centralised government? Are, are we talking about regional boards? Are we talking mm -hmm. about different educational systems for different parts of the island. Well, that's certainly one of the issues thrown up by the Arons uh, um, Irish Times polling, suggesting that there's a quite a large majority in the north who would like to retain specifically Northern Irish institutions and arrangements in, in a range of areas, whereas in the south, the fairly strong majority is for a, a unitary state. But this, of course, is only, I mean, very much at the beginning of a, of a process. Then, of course, I suppose we have the question of um, would Irish remain the the first official language of um, a United Ireland? And again, you know, would the would the titles of our political office holders all be all be in Irish, or or would there be some? I mean, at the moment, of course, 
you know, TD and deputy are pretty interchangeable, but the, it doesn't necessarily happen for Pratishak or, or Tornister or, or others. So there's a range of, of questions. And as you say, it seems to me that it linked very much into the overall spirit in which such a process was um, uh, was entered. But uh, Roisin, did you want to come in on, on some of those points? Yeah, I, I might just say kind of very briefly, the, I suppose the, the first thing and maybe the most complicating factor for a United Ireland would be it would necessarily still be part of the European Union, of which Irish is still an official language. So to some extent, even if the constitution was swept away, an awful lot of the protections we have in now the 2000 Official Languages Act 2003 as amended would still be provided for as a result of EU law and would still be necessarily enforced as a result of our obligations to the European Union. So that will then necessarily just create an imbalance that likely needs to be addressed by the promotion of Ireland to an equivalent status. So the question is how you do that in circumstances where there is a process to convince the European Union that a, a language should be recognised as an official language of the Union. And to whatever extent the, the Union would be kind of uh, agreeable to, to concede that Ireland was in circumstances where it was part of a, a reconciliatory effort, um, there would be kind of complications at a, a very kind of EU law level that had to be dealt with in addition to the Constitution. And I think the Constitution has been the focus to date of an awful lot of the dialogue, but really it's it's far more um, it's far more an, an issue of European law in some respects. Um, the issue then about amendment of the Constitution in terms of Article 8 is, you know, a part of kind of a suite of uh, issues that are both substantive and symbolic, arguably, and would have to be dealt with. I think Brian kind of lays out an awful lot of the issues that would have to be contended with there. No, it is interesting. There is a bit of a precedent uh, at the European level. If, if I re recollect the negotiations I was involved with on the Lisbon Treaty, in that the Spanish government, I think, accepted a sort of a hierarchy of arrangements for some of its languages, where you know, with neither Catalan nor Basque became uh, official languages of the Union, uh, but still provision was made for their use in, in certain circumstances. And then you had sort of Gallego and Valencian Catalan and so on below that, again, with some rights, but not the same set of rights as the others. But um, yeah, hugely, hugely complicated. And as I say, the, um, uh, yeah, but I mean, it's easy to see what could go wrong and uh, at the same time hope for what could go right. But Brian, you wanted to come back. In the same way that it's going to raise questions for the Republic, it raises questions for the North in terms of what is British culture. Is British culture an orange man in a bowler hat with a lambeg drum? Or is it Harry Kane with the uh, rainbow armbands taking a knee at the World Cup? Or is it Jordan Sanko, Seiko or uh, Jude Bellingham living, working in Germany, speaking German? So there's a question mark over what does it mean what does the what role does la, does the Irish language play in Irish identity in the South, and what exactly is British identity, modern contemporary British identity in the North? There's a lot of ha hard, hard questions facing everybody, and I'm not sure we're we're quite aware of the questions we need to answer and ask. And certainly, I think in the South there's quite a tendency, um, even among those who who wish to be sympathetic, uh, to to caricature. Um, the Ulster, the Ulster Protestant, um, the Ulster Unionist, um, at a time when obviously the Orange Order only has a relatively small number of members compared to the the past, and the um, the famous prod in the garden centre, as it used to be described, um, was uh, you know is, is has a really a rather different set of values. We're going to have to wrap up now, um, coming to the end of our time, but. 
just wanted to see if there were any um, final points that either of you would like to make. Maybe, Roisin, do you want to go first? Anything we haven't covered or something you'd like to highlight? No, I, I think we've covered everything, really. I, I think what comes out again and again through the conversations is that this isn't a, a conversation we'll get to have alone. Um, it's one that the European Union is going to be very deeply involved in. And it's one that's going to require us and South not to demand compromises from the North, but also really critically examine how we've been dealing with this issue ourselves and hold ourselves to account in a way that may be quite uncomfortable, I think. Thank you. Brian? I think the role of education is going to be critical here, both at the primary, secondary and public level. Community education, having town hall meetings, TV programmes, radio programmes, discussing, teasing out what the questions are, what the options are. It doesn't have to be an either or. There, it's, it, it's an opportunity to learn from what's worked well in both sides of the border, to embrace those and perhaps to create a better future for everybody. Yeah, and it strikes me, that in fact, that just personally, that this is in fact a kind of topic which might lend itself to a citizens' assembly in a way that fiscal, financial, economic, sort of pure institutional questions mightn't. But that's just uh, that's just me. Uh, Brian and Roisin, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And again, your excellent papers are to be found on the uh, Aaron's um, website. So thank you both very much for talking to me. Okay, good Aaron's, it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.